Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Francis, you've been keeping me really busy with your messages. I know the mask episodes have really brought up a lot of emotions and feelings and thoughts, and I'm so happy you've been reaching out. If this is the first time you're listening, I want to tell you that I am a podcast success coach. So if you know anyone who is thinking of launching a podcast or who should be thinking of launching a podcast, please do make an introduction or just send them my way. And without any further ado, enjoy the show. Welcome, welcome to the Francisco Show podcast. Today, we have with us back on the show for the third time, Carly Chadash. Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. I always love being here. So Carly is a sex therapist and the director of the Laura Marion Mikvah. So we are here in popular demand. We are here to talk about Nida and not Mikvah, not sex. We're talking about the parts of the marriage where women and men or husbands and wives, are leading married lives, however, separated. Let's talk a little bit about, well, just the basics. The basics of what is Nida, and how do Jewish families observe Tarat and Mishpacha? Okay. Nida is a uh, halachic status that a woman embodies from the beginning of her menstrual period until the moment that she immerses in a ritual bath or a mikvah. And it's very frequently countered with the term tahara, which is translated to mean pure, but pure as a translation is so archaic and patriarchal, and I really hate it. But really, the the way that I have been taught to think about nida and tahara is there is the time when a woman has the potential to become pregnant, meaning that her body is preparing to be able to receive sperm with the idea that that sperm could potentially become a baby. And then there's the time where the woman has lost the capacity to become pregnant. And the Nida period is from the moment that her period starts it's understood, we understand from our menstrual cycle, that the body is beginning this cycle of rejuvenation to be able to become a a vessel that's full of potential again. And I think that that's a much more holistic and healthy way of looking at Nida as, as a status rather than in terms of pure versus impure. During the time of Nida, most Orthodox couples will refrain from physical touch completely And I I would say the majority also go as far as to sleep in separate beds. But the da'oraita, the the Torah prohibition during the nida period, has to do with with sex. That intercourse and sexual relations, any sort of sexual contact is prohibited during the time of nida. And then we have the harchakot, or the harchakos, which are the distancing halachos, which extend to not passing items to one another, not touching one another, and not showing extra uh, levels of affection to one another in a way that could be perceived as sexual. Okay, and this time lasts 
how long? So the average cycle is 28 days. And based on a 28-day cycle, you have the minimum of a five-day period, the time from when a woman's period starts until she can do what's called a hefsik tara. And then you have seven white days. So there are seven days where a woman does internal inspections with a special white cloth called a badika cloth that will confirm that there is no more menstrual blood. And then at the end of that seven white days, she immerses in what's called a ritual bath or a mikvah, and then sexual relations can resume. Okay, and if you'd like to hear more about mikvah, please check out the episode we did a couple of months back with Carly, all about mikvah. Now let's talk about the different parts of a woman's life when nida can be a source of conflict, maybe it could be a source of comfort. And let's just discuss how Nida changes its status or its presence in a woman's or in a family life. I think what you're asking gets to the concept of how pervasive Jewish law is in every aspect of life that we live. Because I think it's not just about Nida. Like in, in Orthodox Judaism, we don't make a single decision without thinking about and choosing the the way that the Torah is hoping that we are going to pursue that decision. You know, I was speaking to a Robinson today who told me, you know, we don't put on our socks in the morning without thinking about what the Torah says about how to put on our socks. You know, when we go to the bathroom, when we put food in our bodies, and I think that what you're really getting to is really a bigger question about relationships and how relational dynamics can be exacerbated by stress. And Nida dictates the way that we navigate our relational dynamics because we have times that are prescribed when we're allowed to touch and times that are prescribed when we're not allowed to touch. And it doesn't stop like the days from being hard and someone from wanting a hug and then there's this overarching halachic purview of Taras and Mishpacha that like sometimes that hug is totally off the table. And that's really hard. Yes. Okay. So before we go into the relationship dynamics, maybe you can share from your experience, what are some of the relationships that women have with Nita? So I think that every woman has a different relationship with Nida and a different relationship with Mikvah as well. And I think that very frequently they can conflict with one another and get very, it, it can be very difficult to disentangle those relationships from one another. There was just a study that came out in 2021 that was talking about negative mikvah experiences and and how yeah mikvah attendance interactions with women were very highly correlated with negative mikvah experiences so again thank you for plugging that episode i think that we heard from a lot of your viewers that their experiences were very positively changed once they better understood the role of a mikvah attendant and knew how to advocate for themselves within that framework so thank you for having me on that episode in my line of work as a sex therapist, a lot of couples will come to me and ask me, like, am I normal? Like, are we normal? And I hesitate to define what normal means because I think that everybody has their own normal. There are some people who love the, the different paces of Nida. There are some people who, during, you know, the newlywed stage of their lives, like, absolutely hated it. And then as they had children and were feeling touched out and needed physical space... 
like and felt gross in the beginning of their period, like those nights where they could have the bed to themselves became nights that they really cherished and and loved. And then you have women who hate it all the time and you have women who are, you know, even if they hate it, it's irrelevant because they're going to do it. And so they kind of radically accept it as a reality. And I think that if, if you want, if you want me to say where the majority of Jewish women are in, in the 21st century, in the, you know, modern yeshivish left wing, left wing to right wing, modern Orthodox range, I would say it's probably somewhere in that range of it's not fun. It's never convenient, but we radically accept it as a part of our lives. And so we're going to do it. Yeah. And just to go a little deeper to what you said earlier, how we don't do anything without halacha invading, quote unquote, our lives. You know, when you're furnishing your apartment and you're getting linens or whatever it is, you need two beds. Design-wise, and I care a lot about how design looks, our beds take up disproportionately too much space in the room because we need two large beds. I'd rather have a larger bed than a smaller bed or mismatch type. A lot of people do like one king and then cot or a twin on the side. I don't like how that looks either. So it really dominates and affects how your bedroom looks. So it's a big deal because it's a physical presence that's just there whether you're neat or not. So let's move on. I know a lot of the things you said resonated with me because I've also seen that flip from totally not understanding where it comes from to, oh my gosh, thank God for that because (laughs) kids and your body is just completely overtaken when you have children and then when you're taking care of them and then knowing like you have these nights or a week and a half where you're on roommate duty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not wife duty. And it's it's a fascinating switch that happens. I see a lot of a lot of women in the Kirv space talk about this to advertise Judaism because no one has that. There's a lot of sexual intimacy burnout going on right. in right. couples and relationships that don't have this kind of infrastructure. There's... I wouldn't want to say infidelity is a direct causation from not having any off times with your spouse. Let's talk about that a little bit. I'll have you talk instead of me. So I think you're bringing up a really good point. When you have a couple who's standing under the chuppah, under the marriage canopy, we have the, the Sheva Brachot, the seven blessings that, that we give to the bride and groom to bless them. And then we continue to repeat those Sheva Brachot during the festive meals throughout the week. And the last of the seven brachos is um, we're blessing the bride and groom with with eight different types of happiness, right? You have gila, rina, ditza, chedva, ava, achva, shalom, vareus, right? So what are those things? So we have gila, which is joy, rina, which is song, ditza, which is ecstasy, Chadva, which is passion, right? And then we have Ahava, which is love. Ahva, which is brotherhood, okay? Let's take the gender out of that, but think about what brotherhood signifies. Familial relationship, right? Shalom, completion and peace. And Reyes, which is friendship. Okay, so this is like a very interesting thing that we have that we bless a couple with under the Shavu Brechos. And it also is very clear that the first four are in a very different category than the last 
I'm going to say three, okay? Because I think Ava could really go either way. And I think that's really the point of what, what I've learned and what I'm also trying to articulate, which is that the first four categories of love, song, joy, ecstasy, and passion, those are meant to be exercised and utilized during the time that a woman is not Anita, during the time from when she goes to the mikvah until the start of her next menstrual period. And then the other four, Ahava, Ahva, Shalom, Bereus, those are the four types of love that we bless a couple with when she is Anita, when physical intimacy is not possible, but friendship and family can really be cultivated. And the reason I struggle to say that Ahava love is to be included in the, the portion of when she's Anita is because I tend to think of the love as a bridge. Because love is the bridge between a friendship and an intimate relationship. And that is like, when I think of love, I think of intimacy, of openness, of, of being able to bring all of your parts into a relationship with somebody else. And so I think of that as the bridge from, from passion to friendship. And so I, I wanted to share that first before I address more specifically what you asked about, because I think that the, these Shadabrachos are the framework that we build our marriage upon. You know, these eight types of love, that is the framework. And we can see in that, even that in Judaism and Hebrew, that we have eight different words for love and a relationship it means that we aren't expected to be passionate all of the time because a marriage that has passion without intimacy is not going to be a well-rounded and supportive relationship for somebody to go through all stages of life. And a marriage that has just friendship but doesn't have passion is also going to be challenging in other ways. So having the delineated time that a couple can be separate and focus on themselves and use that time for self-reflection and self-care. And also the pressure of sex is completely taken off of the table, allows a couple to really focus on each other and support each other as people without feeling like, oh my gosh, if we're having such an intense conversation, he's going to have expectations later tonight. Or we're getting into a fight. Does that mean that we're going to have to have makeup sex later so that I know that everything's all better? You're going to have to find ways to know that everything is all better but without the sex. And that's something that, you know, as a sex therapist, one of the first things that I usually do with couples that come in that are facing sexual problems is tell them they're not allowed to have sex until we figure out what the cause of these problems are and address them outside of the bedroom. And then usually that translates back into the bedroom and increases pleasure and, and desire and satisfaction. Fascinating. And has that helped also with preventing infidelity? Is that one of the reasons why hopefully our communities have this issue less? But really, who knows? I, I, yeah, I really hesitate to say that. I also, I mean, I don't want to be naive and think that infidelity doesn't happen in the Orthodox community because it does. I think that there are other gedarim, you know, other walls that we put around uh, male and female relationships that prevent infidelity. I do think that knowing that there's the renewal and knowing that there's going to be this focus time, just as you have this focus time to focus on yourself and on the friendship in your relationship, you are also going to have the opportunity for this focus time to focus on the sexual aspect of your relationship. And I think that knowing that 
might be protective. I hope it's protective. I do think that is one of the struggles that I see that's unique to the Orthodox community, which is that it's very hard for individuals to make the paradigm shift on mikvah night from being completely like non-sexual at to being sexual with their with their spouse. And so I think that's something that is a little bit challenging to navigate, but I think that like that's psychological work, that's mental effort that needs to go in on both individuals' part to be able to create that sexual context before going to mikvah to be able to successfully be present and mindful once the resumption of of sex and intimacy occurs. Yeah, that's very helpful. Okay, so I would like to go into some practical tools for women in different stages of life when it comes to dealing with Nida. And I just want to put one thing out there just to start the ball rolling. And this is not a conversation around whether you have heterum or whether you should have heterum, but birth control, hormonal birth control can help remove periods for a period amount of time. <laughs> and it removes Nida. And I know it has helped many young couples who are just starting out and there's already so much transition and a lot going on. Limiting the period allows for there to be less of that back and forth every two weeks. I, I don't know what rabbis think about that. I definitely heard that some couples got that ATSA to utilize hormonal birth control. And I will leave the floor to you <laughs> to add or to see throughout different stages of life, maybe even talking about transition out of Nido when women go through menopause and then it's go get one bed and go, you never have this on and off time and maybe you have something to add about that. So I think culturally, it's very rare for couples to actually have a long period of time where it's actually two weeks on and two weeks off. And I say, I know that sounds really like flippant and, you know, to say well, not if they're dealing with infertility. Right. Right. So, so even when dealing with infertility, because if you're doing something like IVF, there tends to be, you know, there's a month where you have, you have to take oral birth control and then you have the time leading up to the retrieval. And so barring an infertility scenario, that's different from that, the cultural expectation is that there's actually going to be less time where there's two weeks of Nida and two weeks of not Nida, which I think makes something like infertility so particularly painful and stigmatizing because I'll use a little bit of self-disclosure here. I'm very open about my story. My husband and I were married for five years with no children, and we did three years of fertility treatment in Eretz Yisrael, and Baruch Hashem, we had our oldest, who's now six years old, and had subsequent children, and Baruch Hashem. And I remember I was sitting at a wedding with a friend of mine, and they were playing like this instrumental music, and I turned to my friend, who had been married for, I think, like two years at the time, and I said to her, doesn't this music remind you of what they played the mikvah? And I was like laughing to myself, chuckling, and she turned to me and she goes, I've only been to the mikvah twice since I got married. And I was like, what? And it dawned on me that in the five years that I had been married, I had been to the mikvah probably like more than most from women go in a lifetime <laughs> because of my own struggles. But I think that my friend's experience was probably much more along the lines of what is culturally expected between pregnancy and nursing and birth control and menopause and the large amounts of time that those 
life cycle events take up in a marriage, the expectation is that someone's going to go to the mikvah, you know, like four times a year, five times a year, but might not be going every month. And I don't think there's any issue with that. I think when it comes to hormonal birth control, there are other issues that women should be aware of around how birth control can affect libido and desire that might impact, you know, sexual arousal, openness for sex, a lot more than not having that two-week period to themselves. And I do think that it's important for people to find the space and the and the agency to be able to ask for time for themselves within a relationship. But it doesn't have to be because of Nita. I've heard this when I was 16 or 17. It was in an article somewhere, and I heard women talking about it. Women who were ovulating too early, and they were still Nida when they were ovulating. And they were suffering to infertility due to not being able to conceive when they're actually ovulating. Do you have what to say on that? It is an incredibly difficult situation for somebody to be in. It means that there's a, a much shorter time of tahara between mikvah and going and becoming nida again. There are halachic leniencies um, in terms of maybe counting four days plus seven days instead of five days plus seven days that can be decided with a halachic authority. And there are medications that can be taken to prolong ovulation so that way women are tahara by the time they ovulate in order to be able to possibly get pregnant that cycle. I know many people who are in this situation and it is a very, very challenging situation to be in with no real easy answers. Okay. Next question is, what happens when life happens? I know you're not a yoetzet, but like harchakos or even other things can happen and it's just not practical to, or it's uncomfortable. Sometimes people feel uncomfortable doing archakos in public. They feel like that's revealing or some people do archakos always so people can never tell. What do you have to comment on this? So I hesitate to make any sort of like blanket statement about what most people do. Again, I don't want to define what normal means. We want to just represent or, or share what's out there as options. So I think that there are communally accepted practices. And I think that there are nuances and differences in some of those communally accepted practices. Like you mentioned, in some communities, keeping the harchakos always in public is a value that, that they adhere to so that no one should know what status anybody is in. And in other communities, it, it's very normal for passing, especially with the example of passing things, that passing items to one another isn't, isn't something that's considered intimate touch and therefore doesn't need to be something that is upheld to the level of what would be considered affectionate touch or sexual touch. I think that pretty widely accepted is that things that, that tend to lead to any sort of sexual contact are usually refrained from, like hugging. That being said, I have heard of exceptions when someone's having a panic attack, for example. If like a lot of deep pressure is something that helps somebody calm down, then of course it's, it's per, you know, from, from what I've heard, it's permitted in those circumstances. I remember once hearing someone say this. I have no idea if this was a reputable source or not. 
if you faint or if someone falls and they need help, it's better to have a stranger man help you up than your nida husband. <laughs> or if you're nida, then you have your husband touch you. Do you know about that? I've never heard that. I actually, I broke my foot a few months ago and, and this was relevant, you know, like, and so we spoke to the, like, I needed help to take care of myself. I needed help to get dressed. I needed help to stand up. And there were different ways to do it. Like, you know, not touching directly on my skin, making sure that, you know, like using a shinui, doing things differently than they would normally be done. But there were definitely leniencies. You know, if, if, if a man's crossing the street and there's an old lady who's holding grocery bags and her bags all fall on the ground or she's all, she falls on the ground and she needs help crossing the street. Like how many times do you see a, a Bachar, a young man in Israel helping an old lady by holding her arm while she's crossing the street? That's not, I would say that that's more on the level of what you're talking about than, than any sort of like sexual or intimate touch. So this happened recently. Someone reached out to me and she was clearly struggling with this I'm assuming she hasn't been Nita in a while, and now life is so overwhelming, kids and everything. And I sent her to Yoetz Alacha, but I'm wondering what are some options available to women who are really struggling with so many mental restrictions? It's not just physical. It's like now I have to think about every single thing I'm doing, passing, holding, touching, you know, sometimes... Homes can be small and kids are everywhere and you're always bumping into each other. Like, how do you mentally deal with the whole like, oh my gosh, I'm transgressing every single moment we by accident bump into each other or whatever else it is? I mean, I, I think that we have this in every area of halacha that we follow where we have things that happen by accident, bashogeg, you know, like... If, if you accidentally pick a hangnail on Shabbos, there, I mean, there are people who maybe are strong enough, have, have strong enough shoulders, spiritual shoulders, that this is never an issue for them. I'm certainly not counted among those people. If I could give over anything, I have a funny story. I was, I was taking a halacha test once, and it was about the, the Lama test malachos, the 39 malachos on Shabbos. And one of the examples that I gave for tying a knot was tightening sitzis. And the rabbi, who was a very well-known, reputable rabbi in our community, said, I gave that as an example, and he looked at me, and he went, huh, there are some things you don't get Gehenim for. And I feel like that's the attitude that I kind of have when it comes to these accidental bumping into each other. You accidentally pass something to your spouse. Like, the way that I understand Teshuva, and I'm not a Rebetzin, I'm not a halachic authority, so I'm definitely not giving anybody like any sort of halachic stance on anything. I want to make that really clear. It, but the way that I was taught about Teshuva and making mistakes and atoning is that Hashem doesn't want us to live in fear. And Hashem doesn't want us to live feeling guilty all of the time. So if you're doing the best you can and you're not intentionally putting yourself in a situation where you're going to make a mistake, then you're doing the best you can. And, and that's something that should be celebrated. I think it's great that you sent her to a Yoetzet Halakha. For anybody, a Halakhic authority, whether that's a Yoetzet or a Rav or a Kala teacher, can help you work through this. Another thing that I learned very strongly, and it's something that I, I've shared with several Kala teachers who, who very highly you know, they started incorporating it into their teaching, is that in this, in the category of Taras and Mishpacha, 
bedieved is enough. That, you know, if you're raised in a system that's very focused and black and white, and maybe you went to base Yaakov, and you're experiencing like a level of, I'm going to use the word indoctrination, but I think it's a proud indoctrination into Torah and Halacha. And then you become a Kala and you're learning a whole new Torah because this is information that you were never privy to before. And there's a lot of nuances. And like you said, it impacts every area of your life. Bidiyevet is enough. If you want to take on Chumras, if you want to take on, you know, extra stringencies in other areas of your Torah observance, do that first. Because these are really all-encompassing laws, and it's okay for you to do the bare minimum here. I think this is such a powerful statement, and just for that, it was worth it to do this episode. Let's talk about, I, I want to go to childbirth. A woman becomes, it's it's really nice for many women are very happy to have nine months of non-nida status. And then you go to the hospital, hopefully, or you're doing a home birth. And then there's a point where you become nida. The husband, sometimes some wives want their husbands there helping and participating this might not be your area, but do you have anything to add to the emotional aspect of how can my spouse not be there physically? What do you have to say to that? I think if somebody wants their spouse to be there, there's definitely lenient. Like, like I wouldn't even call it a leniency. I would say that if someone wants their spouse in the room while they're having a baby, let them stand by your head. You know, like there's... I'm going beyond the standing. I'm going like more participating. Holding, holding a leg, leg. or uh-huh. massaging. Uh-huh. So I think different rabbis and different halachic authorities have different opinions about when a woman actually becomes a nida. And one of the ones that I've actually heard is that it's actually when the baby's coming out. And so there might be more room for touching and, f- and physical support in that context. Ultimately, people make decisions that they have to live with and and a person's relationship with Hashem is a person's relationship with Hashem. And that is something that they should always remember when they're making decisions about how they want to, you know, have support or find support during childbirth. I I love doulas. I think having a doula is a great way to get physical support from a woman in the room. I think childbirth is a very intimate and vulnerable state to be in. And sometimes having a woman there is not more supportive than having a spouse, but having your spouse there to give verbal and emotional support and then having a woman there to give the physical support kind of wraps it all up in a nice package to give more of a holistic care if it's accessible for a couple. Let's talk about menopause. So along with birth control, menopause has also a lot of hormonal realities associated with it that impact sexual response, sexual desire, natural responses to stimulation that can be a very big transition for a lot of couples. And having the language to talk about that can help support couples in that transition. One thing that I've heard of recently, I don't know if this is specific to a community that I'm not that familiar with, is that sometimes couples who have experienced menopause or couples who are pregnant will try to like mimic the two weeks on, two weeks off calendar. 
And the way that I understand it is that that's actually pretty antithetical to Torah. I hope that I'm not bashing any communities by saying that because I really, you know, I'm, I'm open to learning more information. And if anybody has information to share with me, I hope that they'll reach out and share it. But from what I understand, like there's no extra credit for refraining from sexual contact when it is allowed. And menopause is one of those times where, you know, once a woman goes to the mikvah for her final immersion, then, you know, sexual contact is is allowed all the time. That being said, this, the sexual contact is not going to be the same sexual contact that it might have been when you were in your early 20s and your hormones were raging and it was really easy for arousal to happen and desire to happen and maybe desire was a little bit more spontaneous and instantaneous. And this is where, you know, anytime that there's any sort of challenge in a relationship around sex, that's when seeking the help of a qualified mental health professional can be really, really healing and empowering. Sex therapists, it sounds really scary because the word sex is in our title, but really the, the main goal that most of my clients have and the reason that I'm there to support them is to help increase communication and emotional intimacy, and then provide tools that the couple can use to help increase physical intimacy throughout that process. So I just want to go over one of the things. I think the needed time, and for some couples, there's more of it, other couples, there's less. It provides this artificial space to work on the marriage. And for anything by artificial, I mean, it's a design space where anything that might be falling through the cracks is exposed. That's where you have to use your words to communicate. That's where you have to find time for self-care if you haven't. That's It forces you to do that. And there are so many benefits. And if you're in a space right now where it feels extremely challenging, you don't understand it, believe that there's a larger portion here, something playing that it is enhancing or there are ways for that to be enhancing your marriage. And if you open your eyes or seek help or find the tools you need, you can use that to your advantage to actually find ways to appreciate it. So I I am no therapist, but I'll just share my own experiences. And then the next thing I want to touch upon, which I think is very important, and we can't end an episode without talking about that. I know you started off by saying, we don't want to use the word impurity or anything negative because periods are beautiful and that's the cycle of life and that's, you know, it's it's the possibility of new life. However, for anyone who has experienced infertility, secondary infertility or miscarriages or stillbirths, that, that moment of the red coming out and that sign of death, that sign of we have to try again. When is this going to end? And then there's that very heavy negative association with Nida. What kind of tools can we offer women who who just associate Nida with failure, with loss? I, I do a lot of grief and loss work with my clients, and I've done a lot of it myself also. And one of the antidotes to grief is not time. Like people say time heals all wounds. I actually don't believe that's true. I think that with time, loss and grief takes different form. And I think that it resurges during whenever there's a trigger or reminder of that initial loss. I, I don't I don't believe that time heals all wounds. I do believe that 
wounds kind of shift and change over time, but I think they're always there. But one of the opposites of grief is meaning-making, finding meaning, finding purpose. Finding meaning in Nida can actually be one of those opportunities for healing and meaning-making in light of grief and loss. And that doesn't mean it's easy work. It's really hard work. And it requires a lot of mental shifting. I think that it looks different for every individual who's experienced a loss. But if we look at the way that sex is viewed in Judaism, anytime there's a loss of life or potential life, sex is not allowed. When someone in a marriage is sitting shiva, you know, sexual intimacy is not allowed. After a miscarriage or a stillbirth, you know, intimacy is not allowed. So what's the purpose of that? What is the meaning of that? And, and I'm not saying that we need to have the answers. I'm even going to hesitate to say what my ideas of what some of those answers may be, because I think that they need to be owned by an individual in the way that they understand their own experience. But I think that, it, you know, if I was going to give any sort of idea, I think that it has to do with self-preservation and focusing on the self rather than projecting out and sharing the grief, like really sitting in the grief and working through it alone, which feels really isolating in the moment, but can ultimately lead to greater healing in time. Wow. I think I'm going to have to re-listen to that so it could sink in a little deeper. You're right. It is an individual journey and every person has to figure out what that means for them and how they need to make that a part of their life and embrace it and figure out how to live with it because it's tough and you're alone and it's really difficult. And we're going to wrap up with this last thing more on a practical note. I love how you said earlier on how bedieved is good enough in this mitzvah. For anyone who's young and is used to clear bdikas and then you deal with childbirth or or whatever else, you know, clear bdikas are not a... I think it's more like what you think isn't clear might actually be clear. Be clear. Okay, there we go. So can you adjust some standards and expectations just for those women out there who think or who are being nida a lot extra than they need to be? I would like to just break down some false information on women who are used to doing going the extra mile and getting that 100 on the test and not settling for 97. Yeah, I I appreciate so much that you asked this question. I think that we have a tendency to want everything to be perfect. I think that women in particular are socialized to be perfectionists, to not make trouble, to not self-advocate, to not ask questions that are difficult. And I think this area is an area where you have to ask the questions because it really, there is so much more leniency than you would ever expect when it comes to colors on a batika cloth or a stain um, on, on a fabric. And I think having an open line of communication with whoever you normally speak to, whatever halachic authority you feel comfortable talking to, is absolutely necessary to be able to 
figure out whether whether this is even a question, you know, what, what, what is the question and then where do you go from there? And I'll just add one more thing and I'll share a little personal tip. And the first thing is to find someone, as you said, you feel comfortable talking to. And I find that for myself and my marriage, going through my husband to the rabbi, I found that there was a broken telephone game going on. By the time we got my response, I was like, he did for sure not hear the question I was asking. So by the time I discovered Yoatzot and I was able to have a conversation where I was able to advocate for myself, no offense to my husband, <laughs> there's a lot more leniency. It's important for women to speak up and share, you know, if they're if they're challenged with something or something is difficult for them at the time, there's so much more leniency out there than we give our rabbis credit for and that we give Torah credit for. And I remember this woman, she's a, a relative, she once said, she was recruited to Shear and she said, oh, I don't want to go to Shear and learn all about the things I can't do. And the rabbi said, if you come to my Shear, you'll learn about all the things you're doing that you don't have to be doing. And she ended up going to that cheer and she loved that weekly dose of inspiration that she used to go to. So I used to think if you ask, you're going to be told no. And that just feels so much worse, especially by rabbi and going through that potentially shameful or whatever experience, very foreign experience. Very often, especially with the comfort of Yotso, and some people use photographs and WhatsApp, you don't even have to go see the person there's so much more room for leniency and you don't have to be Nida for half of your marriage or for your entire life. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I remember we had a Shaila once and my husband was on the phone with the Rav and I was sitting right next to him, literally like telling him what to say. And the, and the Rav said, put your wife on the phone. Like you're a grown up now, put your wife on the phone. And I was so embarrassed and mortified, but you're absolutely right. Once I started asking my own Shilas, it ended up being that I got more of the answer that I was hoping for instead of the blanket answer, you know, that you are always going to be your best advocate. Yes. Even if your husband is on your team and on your side, you... A hundred percent. Okay. So I think we covered everything. And if we haven't, please reach out with follow-up questions. We, I'm sure Carly would be happy to do a number two a sequel to this. So thank you for tuning in. Carly, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for sticking around until the end. Hopefully, God willing, next week we will have the hair covering series just for Hanukkah. If you have any ideas for topics and interviews, please do reach out. We are building out the next season. And if you or anyone you know is looking to launch a podcast just like me, please do reach out. I'd love to help you set up for success with my signature program, VIP Podcast Launch Intensive. Also, if you like this podcast, check out some of the other podcasts on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Also, check out the backlog of this podcast and make sure to share this show with a friend, a family member. And see you next time.